It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. Wise Money is brought to you by the attorneys at Ledoux, Curran, and Keene, First State Bank, Diane Bennett, and the Inspired Team at REMAX 100, and Bethel College's Adult and Graduate Studies Program. Good morning, folks. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group, where every week we're helping you take your next wise step in your financial life. My name is Mike Bernard. I'm your host, as well as one of the financial advisors on the show, along with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Coming up this hour on Wise Money, we're answering a question. Should your investments beat the market? That answer and more just ahead on Wise Money. What a great question. Thank I can't there was a lot of energy there, too. Nice job, Kevin. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling it this morning. Hey, Come if on. you've got a question we want to hear from you, reach out to us. You can send us a text message or give us a call, 574-222-2000. You can also catch us online, wisemoneyradio.com, to submit a question and catch up on previous episodes. Also, you can submit questions on Facebook and Twitter, as well as track the show, see additional content, all of that, at Wise Money on Facebook and Twitter. So, Okay, I can't believe it's it's... Episode 101, last week was the 100th, and this is the first time we're legitimately getting this question. I love it. And it's a great question from listener Renee. It's a two-parter, if you will. But here's what Renee asked. Should I expect my portfolio to outperform the S&P 500? And how many different products should be in my IRA? Mutual funds, how many? I currently have 18, and I think that's too many. So it's a a two-parter. I want to actually really split those in half, although they are very much connected. And so so let's address, let's spend some time tackling, should your investments outperform the S&P 500? I'm at, at least impressed that uh, the question was the S&P 500, not the Dow Jones Industrial Average, yep. which is maybe the more common benchmark that a lot of people default to. But even that one, the answer is probably the same. Should you track your overall portfolio against just the U.S. stock market, and and should you be outperforming it? You should be outperforming it if you're taking more risk than it, right? Yeah, but There's even a, then, that's not. I would I would argue with you okay. a, a little bit because what if you're taking more risk by being just in commodities, just in gold? I had a question. We're gonna we're gonna address this question on the upcoming show. Should you be in Bitcoin? Interesting. Wow, that's taking more risk than the stock market, but yep, doesn't necessarily mean that you'll outperform the stock market. But I, I think the point, though, is if you take more risk, you should expect higher returns. But I, I think the the heart of the question here is, is the S&P 500 really a good benchmark? Or right? a good comparison. Good comparison. Yeah. So I'll give you my answer. If the, if the question, and thanks for the question, Renee, should I expect my portfolio to outperform the S&P 500? The answer is yes and no. I'm on the edge of my seat, although we're recording this as well, and I'm not, but I figuratively okay. am so on the of, edge of my seat. Of course, your portfolio should definitely outperform the S&P 500 if it is not invested in just the S&P 500. So if you have a diversified portfolio, there are going to be years when a diversified portfolio is going to significantly outperform the S&P 500. So think of a diversified portfolio in 2008. Your diversified portfolio uh, may have been down 
10 to 20%, the S&P 500 was down 38%. So significantly hmm. outperformed the S&P 500. Great that, point. That's, that is- On the way down is what you're saying. That's right. You um, didn't yeah. lose as much money in other words. Mm-hmm. Right. So you didn't lose as much money. If you look at a time, so that if the stock market bottomed out in March of 2009, say March 9th to be exact, if you- took and you were looking at a chart from March 9th of 2009, you could take the value of the S&P 500 and go all the way back to 1997. So my question, Renee, is if you gave me $100,000 in 1997 and you said, Kevin, I'm going on a long trip, I'll be back, what should I expect from my portfolio? I'd say, well, you should expect over time some meaningful gains. So you arrive back in the country on March 7th. March 9th. Right. Well, March seventh is a national holiday. Okay, gotcha. so you get back, you get into the country. <laughs> I thought you said March. On Mar- right. Well, you're you're you've got jet lag and a few other things. So it. It, so we get together. You're you're uh, you're able to meet with me on the ninth. We meet on the ninth, and you say, Kevin, I gave you a hundred grand. How many doubles did I get out of my money in that ter- time period? Did it double once? Did it double twice? What did it do? And I would say, Renee, your hundred thousand is worth a hundred thousand. And you say, after 12 years, it hasn't grown a penny? Yeah, after 12 years, it hasn't grown a penny. So the question, Renee, is at that point in time, do you keep me? (laughs) (laughs) Do you keep me? And and quite honestly, most folks kind of got soured on investing. In In the first bear market of the 2000, most folks said, you know what? I can't stand watching my investments go down in value. I'm going to take as much money as I can get together and I'm going to put it in the one investment that doesn't lose in value ever. Real estate. Real estate. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's Famous what- last words. And, mm-hmm. and guess what was created? A real estate bubble. Well, it's interesting that you give that context because I think, and I'm prone to this as well, as investors, we have amnesia and it's contagious. You forget about what happened just a little bit outside, maybe two years ago. You just forget. And the S&P 500, if you look at the various places you can invest, has been on a hot streak over the past couple of years. And so most investors, me as well, have amnesia that it wasn't too long ago that the S&P had its only stretch, I believe, of a more than 10-year time period where it gained no money, that 97 to 09. And over that time, had you been diversified, then your average return, and I don't have it in front of me, fact checkers, uh, don't don't yell at me, I think around 4% per year on average. And I'm going to say between 5 and 7. Okay. Well, it just depends on what that mix is, right? So, so here, here's my... Here, so, so that's... That's the right context because on the way down, when there are inevitable downturns in the stock market, a diversified portfolio should really help you. The problem is being diversified means not all of your eggs eggs are in one basket. The problem with then trying to compare that investment philosophy to the S&P 500 is like saying, don't have all your eggs in one basket, but compare them all to this one basket. Well, that just... That just doesn't make sense. We are inundated with what the S&P 500 is doing by the news or anytime you read an article about finance, it's in there. So you're really, really tempted to compare it to that. 
I would want the Wise Money Show to be a beacon of of light to no no that's that's a false comparison right the right comparison is comparing your progress to the pace that you should be on for your goals mm-hmm. and and that means that all of your investment evaluation should be done in the context of your overall financial plan that's what this show is all about and the the S&P 500 is not necessarily the pace that you're supposed to be on for those goals okay so here's the problem there are a bunch of people out there that are saying okay Joshua that sounds really smart, but it also sounds like kind of a weenie answer. So if I had a nickel every so, time. So, <laughs> so here's so here's the so here's the question though. What else is wrong with comparing my portfolio to the S&P 500? What's wrong with the S&P 500? And so- it, I'm with, in a list. I've got, we've only hit one. I've got seven things listed. Well- that's it. I'm I'm tuning in after the commercial break because it's <laughs> got to be fantastic. No, but 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 I so here here's a quick example. I have uh, I, I've got a friend who I've been blessed to serve for a number of years, and he's got a problem, and, and a great person, but he's got a problem. And I think a lot of you listening right now have this problem as well. Here's the discussion. Mike, I don't like seeing lots of ups and downs. We had a full risk analysis and discussed it and the right mix for him. And he's right on the edge of retirement. In fact, truth be told, he just retired last year. He, we, we had a 50-50 mix between 50% stocks, 50% bonds. And yet every time we would meet, he would say, Mike, because I love looking at that. He looks every day. The <laughs> S&P 500 is, has performed this. Come on, Why Mike. haven't I performed that? No kidding. And I'm not kidding. Over the years, I've had that discussion with him many, many times. Folks, you can't ask a duck to run as fast as a deer, right? If, you, if you're invested in a diversified portfolio, you, you can't compare to just the S&P 500. There is a lot more. We need to talk about this question. Are you the duck or the deer in <laughs> I don't this analogy? Know. I, don't, I don't know. Kevin hunts deer, so maybe I'm a duck. Uh, <laughs> so we've got a lot more here to tackle, as well as the other half of his question, which is yeah. how much diversification should I really have? Yeah. Is 18 investments too many? So a lot more here to come on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Good morning, folks. Thank you so much for being with us today, spending part of your weekend with us. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name is Mike Bernard. Next to Josh Gregory, next to Kevin Corhorn. Special thanks to the attorneys at Ledoux, Kern, and Keene, as well as First State Bank for sponsoring the content of today's program. We are tackling a question from Renee, an awesome question, about what your investment expectations and approach should be. If you have a question, Give us a call, send us a text, 574-222-2000 or wisemoneyradio.com, and we'll tackle your question on an upcoming show. So Renee's question, real quick, it's a two-parter. We're still in the first part of the question. Here's what he asked. Should I expect my portfolio to outperform the S&P 500? And the second part, how many different products or mutual funds should I invest in within my IRA? He's got 18, he thinks that's too many. We're still talking about, should you compare your investments to the S&P 500? And the, and, and the approach, folks, if you believe in diversification, where you shouldn't have all your eggs in one basket, you should invest both in the US, large cap, as well as international, small cap, 
stocks and bonds, those have varying risk levels. When you put them together, what Kevin said earlier in his story was when you put them together in any given year, they might or might not outperform the S&P 500. They should definitely, that diversified portfolio should take less risk and should protect on the way down. It might not always keep up as much on the way up, but over a long period of time, all the evidence and math shows that's a better approach. The problem is many, many, many investors compare their diversified portfolio to the S&P 500 and conclude, I must be doing something wrong. They conclude that in the good times. And then what do they do? They start chasing, they start tweaking and abandoning that diversified portfolio. And maybe they're fortunate to be lucky for a couple of years and say, well, gosh, I'm so glad I abandoned those international and those bonds. I mean, this is definitely the way to go right in time for the markets to turn because markets are cyclical. And then they'll run back to diversification after taking a bath. Folks, that's why the average long-term investor only makes 2% a year, even though the a diversified portfolio should do eight to 10. Yeah, that's right. That's a great point. So can we get back to the, the problems with the S&P 500? Yes. So the S&P 500 is the 500 largest US stocks uh, in the US. And so- <laughs> So at the, at the risk <laughs> Love of being, it. yes, uh, we're getting some clarity. Uh, sorry for being redundant again. So the, the, <laughs> the, the problem with the S&P 500 is it is what, it, what we in the industry, here's a jargon alert, what we call a cap-weighted index mm. or a capitalization-weighted index. And so, Josh, can you tell us what a cap-weighted index is? So basically what the S&P 500 is, is it's those 500 stocks, but they don't all represent the same value in the index. The larger companies get a bigger share. So a subtle movement in a big company can have a bigger impact on the overall performance of the index. They don't each get uh, an incremental or equal weighted swing when things change. Yeah. So that's the reason why back in 1998, the S&P 500 was up 28%. And that was due to the performance of about seven companies. And there was actually a stealth bear market because there were about 200 companies in the S&P 500 that were negative for the year. Mm. So if you were an active portfolio manager, there's really no way you could have beaten the S&P 500 that year. The only way is if you had bet on those seven or eight companies. So when I look at this and I say, okay, what what should I compare to the S&P 500? I would compare an S&P 500 index fund. See, I, I would go so far as to say it's fair for, for you to compare your large cap U.S. investment to the S&P 500, but not your, Renee, your question was your portfolio. I would not compare your portfolio to that. I'd compare your U.S. large cap investments to the S&P 500, but you should also have, and we're going to get into the second part of this question, you should also have mid cap and small cap U.S. You should have core international. You should have these other pieces, and it would just be unfair. The other analogy, I don't, I don't think my duck versus deer analogy really landed. I grew up a hockey player, okay? You expect defensemen to be slower than offense, right? You just do they sure. have they they actually it's a it's a longer stick that they use because their approach is different. In order to win, I suppose I I would I wonder could a team of just five different Wayne Gretzkys beat the ninety seven ninety eight Stanley Cup winning 
Detroit Red Wings. I'm saying no. You need a balanced team on the ice. You need a goalie. Wayne Gretzky was scrawny. <laughs> he wouldn't be able to stop anything. You need a goalie. And you have different expectations for your goalie than you do your center. Have different expectations from your defense than you do your left wing. But that balance creates a great team. Here's the difficult thing for a lot of folks, though, is being able to judge that balance. I met with a client uh, just this past week who he, he works for a local university. He had nine different mutual funds in his retirement plan at work, and he came to me, wanted help evaluating it. And we revealed to him that five of those mutual funds were basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Same fund stamped out five different times. They all happen to invest in large U.S. companies. Yep. And so he's sitting here thinking, hey, I've got a diversified team out on the ice, right? Uh, because I've, I've got all these different players. There's but different in, names, sure. That's right. The, the reality was, though, uh, these mutual funds were all kind of covering, they, they were all bringing the same skill, the same performance, and you're either going to be really happy when that piece of the portfolio is doing well, or you're going to be really bummed when they all turn south at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a time when folks would come in and say, hey, I've got this great diversified portfolio. I've got five different Janus funds. And the reality is those were all the invested. If you peeled the onion back just one layer, they're all invested in the same companies. Yeah. It's, it's In essence, it's the same Funds. There's so a very, very well-known mutual fund company right now that is that is a big proponent of that. It's it's an American company. <laughs> yeah, almost, and and in the U.S. Yeah. Um, fu- they have funds. Yes. So th- let's let's turn our attention to the second part of his question because I think we're, we're leading there. The second part is how many different mutual funds should you have in your portfolio? He said, I've got 18. Is that the right, is that the right amount? Well, I don't know. It, but, but if you've got... If you've got 18, to Josh and Kevin's point, and 17 of them are invested in large U.S., then you actually don't have enough. <laughs> right. And I, would, I wouldn't ask the question, what is the right number of funds to have in my portfolio? I would ask the question, what's the process that I followed to arrive at the right number of funds in my portfolio. Yes, that is the question. And then what's the process I will use to evaluate to keep those right. or make changes in the future? I think most investors intuitively understand by now. I mean, the, the old saying, don't have all your eggs in one basket is fairly cliche at this point. But the, the point, though, is, you know, sometimes I use the analogy of we're, we're kind of using a recipe to bake a cake or bake a pie or something. How much of each ingredient needs to go into your portfolio should be arrived at based on a process, as you right. said, uh, an evaluation of how much risk you're willing to take and what kind of returns your financial plan needs you to achieve. But finding out how, how much of each ingredient is the first step and then picking mutual funds that will best fulfill or carry out those ingredients is, is the process that I would go through. Yeah, and I'm going to go back I- I- even a step beyond that. Part of figuring out those things is saying, what am I trying to achieve with the money? Yeah. See, I yeah. think even before it, it, you get there, the first question is, what's your investment time horizon? What's the purpose? Be- because even the best, best investment might be an awful idea if you're only investing for a year. And if you sit down, as, as we've done thousands of times with most folks, and you said, well, what's what do you want us to keep the, our closest eye on? What do we, you want us to manage the very best? They're going to say, could you manage the risk? 
They're not going to say, can you get me the very best return? Yeah. I, it, because and, we haven't felt risk in a while. And so I feel like we we're again, that amnesia is kicking in and you might think, no, 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 I want, I want return right now. Right no, now. I, I don't risk. care about risk. Right. <laughs> so, so that's where what most folks would say in an objective moment is I care most about risk. So you follow the process, a, a, a principle-driven process to come up with the right result. You implement the result, and people say, I don't like the, to use your analogy, Josh, I don't like the cake that you baked or the pie that you baked because it's not keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, so that where, again, I would inject, hey, you should have a certified financial planner on your team. You Absolutely. need a coach to help keep you disciplined and help you follow that right process and to be able to do research that maybe you just can't do. Hey, can your long-term care insurance premiums go up after you buy the insurance? We've got a great question coming up and a lot more here on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Good morning, folks. Thank you so much for being with us today. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name's Mike, along with Josh and Kevin in the KFG studios. Thank you to Bethel College Adult and Graduate Studies, as well as Diane Bennett with Remax 100 for making the Wise Money show possible. So far, we've been answering an unbelievable question, two-parter from Renee. Should my portfolio beat the S&P 500? And how much diversification, how many funds should I have in my portfolio? If that sounds intriguing and you missed it, Check us out, wisemoneyradio.com. We've got all the previous episodes right there. You can leave a question as well. If you don't like that and really love podcasts, we've got every episode on podcasts, Google Play and iTunes. Just search Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Lastly, if you've got a question, give us a call, send us a text, 574-222-2000. We've got a great question coming up about should or could my long-term care insurance premium increase on me after I buy the coverage? I don't think you're going to like that answer. Before we get there, I've been dying, really anxious, to get into a couple financial headlines that I've seen. Hopefully, we've got time to tackle one today, but there's a few more on the docket. This first one is a recent study on how millennials spend more money, on average, than older generations on a few key categories, specifically groceries, gas, restaurants, coffees, and cell phone bills. This is very interesting. The article states, actually the the title is, Why Millennials Can't Have Nice Things. Very interesting. So let's talk about this. Apparently they do have some nice things. (laughs) Nice cell phones. Nice gas in their car, nice groceries. Can we start with, so so we're a younger firm. We've got a lot of millennials. And folks, I'm technically a millennial as well. Is the it, can you we say the word millennial without offending people? Yeah, I'm not offended at all. So, <laughs> I, I, here's, uh, well, you're a baby boomer. So, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. See, it, is, it can't be offensive. So, when we say the word okay. millennial, we're not using Casey's term strawberry or anything else. No, just that segment of the population. And that I really, was born between 1981 and 1997. Yeah, right. So we're not we're not applying any stereotypes. In fact, I actually disagree a lot with this article. But what do you guys think? Well, I I think 
most of the millennials that I know I would would fit a certain stereotype, and that is that they are very social creatures, right? Some of the the key phrases that you hear them say are it's it's all about relationships and friendships and community and being connected with people, and so it doesn't surprise me that you know some of the the items mentioned uh, in the article here often have a social aspect to it. You'd you know, spend more up at, in a coffee shop. Yeah, and, 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 and you'd spend more at the grocery store if you were entertaining. You're going to spend more going out to eat, coffee shop. And, and then, which is it's kind of an oxymoron that, that millennials like to be in relationship because they've grown up with cell phones and texting. I w- I'm an introvert, so I would just, hey, instead of hanging out with you, I'll just text you. Um, but that's that connectivity but is important. Yeah, they've proven that you can have relationships and be connected using technology. I, right? I so I just wonder if this article is all applying spin. These are let's just assume they're facts. Okay, so so let me just tell you. On average, millennials spend twenty three hundred more per year than older generations on groceries, gasoline, so getting to friends, uh, restaurants, coffees. Uh, coffee shops and cell phone bills, but it also states in parentheses, by the way, but they spend eleven hundred less per year on travel and TV, like cable and and other things. So is this just hey, we've got cultural issues here, and millennials aren't being foolish with money; they're just spending it on things that they value, and that might be a little different than what older generations. Well, that's value. right, because there are other articles that we've read and referenced on this show that uh, point out that millennials are more likely to save up for a vacation. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why um, you know they're spending less is their vacations are spread out a little bit more. Maybe they approach it a little bit more thoughtfully. They're not swiping a credit card. They're saving up ahead of time and maybe because of that being a little bit more frugal. So I'm, I'm putting a positive spin for the millennials out there. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that the millennials have going for them they're really young. They're yes. young. Yes. They've, got, they've got age on their side. Yes, they do. They, it, it, time is on their side, <laughs> if you will. So the, the, the greatest generation, the transfer of wealth from the greatest generation on down was, is, was about $11 trillion. And the, so when I heard that, I thought, well, certainly then the boomers are going to transfer less to their children, who are the Generation X and millennials. And actually, the the boomers are going to transfer about thirty trillion. Oh my goodness! So about three times what the greatest generation transferred, the boomers are going to transfer. So I think some millennials may have never, if you were in the greatest generation or a baby boomer, chances are you had an opportunity to grow up poor or grow up without much. Mm-hmm. And chances are, if you were a millennial, you probably didn't have that opportunity. Yeah. I've shared uh, a little bit of my testimony before. Both my parents grew up poor. And then, but they worked hard. They were, I think, the first in both of their families, yes, they were, to go to college. And they got good jobs. And then they were very, very frugal because they grew up they grew up poor. And so I didn't have to grow up in that. I I mean, I've been blessed. blessed, So millennials haven't grown up poor. But after they get launched from the nest, as they start their career, they have incredible potential to live poor because they're graduating with record amounts of debt. 
mm-hmm. right? And student it, student loans, student loans. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and they have some uphill battles, which means um, building the right habits is especially important for them because they they don't have everything stacked in their favor right now. I, that's where I wanted to take the discussion. Okay, so the article even calls millennials that says the falling victim. No, no, no. Let's turn that. What what are some good habits? That millennials or or folks just starting their financial journey should have. Yeah, and before we answer that question, Mike, <laughs> I'd like to that look. I'd like to deal with the most uh, pressing thing here. Because so so Josh said they once they're launched from the nest, they live poor. And the interesting thing about the millennials is they may live with not lots of money because they've got record amounts of student loan debt and some other things, but they would tell you that they live richly. And it is one of the things that I admire about the millennials. They don't seem to wonder about what's important to them. Mm-hmm. And they're actually willing to put their money where their mouth is and say, hey, listen, here's the deal. I'm not spending it on a cable package with 250 channels. I'm going to actually go uh, use the internet and for 10 bucks yeah. a month or Amazon Prime and get my TV yep. when I want it, how I want it, and and I'm so I'm saving 150 bucks a month there, which I'm going to spend at the coffee shop because I get much more joy from the coffee shop. And I talked with a friend yesterday who was talking about this idea that we're not going to have parking lots full of cars, where cars will be on demand. I think the millennial generation will be the first generation to embrace that idea. And so when you read what the futurists say about how we won't have cars 10 years from now, mm-hmm. I can tell you this, the first generation to embrace that will likely be the millennials. Yeah. And think how much more money you would have today if you didn't own a car. So so financial habits for millennials, that's what you were saying. So <laughs> I, yeah, to, let's get to, to that, that please. point, <laughs> yes, they, I believe millennials spend money, allocate money to where they, to what they value in experience and, and other things and lifestyle today. What I would tell you, the very first habit should be think long-term, envision yourself as a, a, if you're a younger individual, envision yourself age 60, 65, 70 and think, okay, what are the big rocks that I need to put in my life today to get ready to make sure that the 70-year-old me still can go to coffee shops in their little jetpack or whatever they're flying those days <laughs> or whatever, still have those experiences out there in the future. Start saving for that goal and then live on what's left. Well, in order to save, though, you have to have incredible control over where your cash flow is going. So learning the habit of giving leadership to your cash flow is, in my opinion, one of those foundational habits that you have to build early. Because if you don't tell your money where it's going to go, the the risk is, is that uh, just kind of the, the ruts of life, you know, just the patterns of life are what are driving your spending instead of the thoughtful planning ahead of goals that will be important to you down the road. Right, because your budget is actually going to tell you how much money you do have to spend at the coffee shop or for your Uber or Lyft That's exactly or Pandora. Right. That's exactly right. Or so so the, the, the combination between, the, you're just making up names. The combination between those two things are have a budget so you have control of your spending and make sure you're allocating the right amount of money from that budget to the future things that you really want to do. And then through the process of those two things, you can then see, all right, this is how much fun I get to have. I think that balance there and then whether you spend it at at the coffee shops, restaurants, or whatever, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It is the budget that lets you live richly. All right. We've got a couple more questions coming up as well as the one about should your long-term care insurance premiums increase after you buy it? 
Got that and more coming up here on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Wise Money is brought to you by the attorneys at Ledoux, Curran, and Keene, First State Bank, Diane Bennett, and the Inspired Team at REMAX 100, and Bethel College's Adult and Graduate Studies Program. Good morning, folks. Thank you so much for being with us today. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name is Mike Bernard alongside Josh Gregory and Kevin Corhorn. If you've missed anything, check us out, wisemoneyradio.com. This podcast will be up there, oh, middle of the week. It will also be on iTunes and Google Play as well. If you have questions, reach out to us. Give us a call. Send us a text, 574-222-2000 or at wisemoneyradio.com. You can leave a question or Facebook and Twitter at wisemoneyradio. Oh, it's been, gosh, we've got into a few different things. We've got a few more things to hit. But we just left off talking about wise financial habits if you're a millennial. But we were just talking at... Uh, at the break that no, it really can apply to wherever you're at. That's right. Regardless of what point in life, what generation you're a part of, all of these habits are going to lead to the same results. And, you know, I'll I'll throw one more habit in there that maybe um, could could help you drive the other great habits, and that is setting annual goals for your life. Write them down. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like so many people really go through life directionless. And I, I'm always a fan. I, I believe that a, a new year, whether it's a new calendar year or a new uh, year of life, is a great opportunity to revisit your goals. I, I just had a birthday here uh, <laughs> recently, and Andrea was asking me, well, what do you want to do on your birthday leading up to it? And, it, you know, my birthday was on a Sunday, so I get to go to church and worship God. But the answer I gave her was, well, after church, I want to go float in the pool. <laughs> I, I just want to hang out. But... But that's not really what I wanted. I wanted some introspection time. Hmm. I, I feel like a birthday is a time to revisit and just kind of analyze, kind of review. Are you pointed in the direction that, that you really should be that is going to lead you to the right destination? Or are there some changes that are needed? And that is a habit that I think is incredibly important to, to build. It's being proactive instead of just letting a crisis redirect your life. Mm-hmm. What if you could have a planful redirection of your life on a regular basis. And that's what financial planning is all about. Yep. Right? So going back to one of the habits we already talked about, whether you're a millennial or not, is to look ahead at your life and, and, and okay, what are the big rocks? What are the, re- what are the things that are really, really important to you? Make sure you put those in the canister first. Then you can fit in the pebbles, then the sand, then the water if you go, if you take that approach. And Josh, I love the idea of you grabbing a cup of coffee, sitting down and reviewing. <laughs> Josh doesn't like coffee. Sitting down and reviewing what your goals are at each birthday, what you want to achieve within the next year. Make sure those rocks, you put those rocks in place. Many people need a coach and would benefit from having a certified financial planner helping yeah. them with that financially. Yeah, I too love the idea of Josh sitting down with a peanut butter sandwich and <laughs> reflecting. <laughs> he also doesn't like peanut butter. On what's oh, important to him. But here's the here's the thing. These skills are not taught very well. 
So I one time was teaching a class, there was about 14 people in it, and I said, raise your hand if you think your parents did a fantastic job of teaching you about money. <laughs> and people looked at me like I had a third eye in the middle of my forehead, like, what is wrong? Why would you not ask that question? That's, that's just, do you, I'm dumb. And I said, <laughs> you know, I think it, it is important that, the, that this, this happens at home, that's what I believe, but a lot of times it doesn't, and so you say, well, then what's the next idea? Well, that it should happen in school. So then I said, well, who, did, did, did anyone feel like they got sufficient uh, education from school on how to do a budget? Most folks didn't. I had Mrs. Morris for accounting in 11th and 12th grade, and she helped us with all kinds of accounting concepts, but also with the budgeting skills mm -hmm. that built upon what my the foundation my folks had already laid. And so I felt like I was really well-equipped to do this. Most folks don't. And so if you haven't been well-equipped, don't beat yourself up for not being great at this, but do add the skill to your repertoire. This has to be a skill that you have. So go see a certified financial planner who actually practices financial yeah. planning and get the help. Well, and, and last week we talked about this being a VUCA world. Life is changing rapidly. So to sit down and build a budget or talk about your goals and make sure you've got the right money directed there you might feel like, oh, that's, you know, we don't need to do that. We've got technology that helps with that. No, but, you know, guys, it's still it's still a habit. It's still a practice that you need to have as a priority. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Yeah, we're going to be Buka talking world. about that a lot. So great question from Dave coming up next. Dave is 67. Here's what he said. I just got a notice that my long-term care insurance premium is going up. I thought... That wasn't supposed to happen. Now, apparently, I have to pay more for the same coverage or reduce my benefits. I'm tempted to drop this thing altogether. What should I do? It's a great question. Long-term care insurance is something that you probably need to buy when you're younger and healthy, so maybe in your 50s, um, and you'd certainly need to be healthy. Otherwise, you won't qualify. But you're kind of stuck paying the this, this insurance premium, and it's, well... It's, I was going to say it's not cheap, but that's relative, and it get, you get a ton of protection. But you've got the mentality that I'm not going to use this thing for a few decades till the price is just going to stay the same. Well, truth is, because the actuaries didn't do a great job of assessing what the cost for long-term care services would be and how many people would actually use them, they now have to raise the prices. If you know that reason, that's why... Dave, I think that leads you very easily to say, you can't drop this thing altogether. It's happening more frequently than what people thought, really, really smart people, and it's way more expensive than what people thought. You can't drop this insurance. I, I agree completely. And, you know, the, the fact that it feels kind of a surprise or a little shocking that the, the price went up, Dave, at age 67, I'm assuming that you've had this policy in place for a number of years. Yep. And if this is the first time that you've seen a price increase, that actually speaks to the relative stability that we've seen over the years. The price for new policies, you know, new new products that are coming to market have been skyrocketing because mm -hmm. of the mispricing that you were referring to, Mike. But um, most people who put their insurance in place, they haven't seen a lot of increases. Compare that to health insurance, where every year, you know, we've just 
become conditioned to expect, oh, yeah, my premiums are going to jump 20 30%, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And everyone plugs their nose. We all complain about it, but we still keep the coverage in place. But here, here's why. I mean, most people view long-term care insurance similar to life insurance. I'm buying it. I'm going to pay on it for a long time. And it's really unlikely that, I, that you know, it's really going to pay out. But with life insurance, typically you're buying term and it's just a flat amount every single month. And there are the same clauses within your term life insurance policy as are in long-term care insurance that, listen, if we really goofed up, we're in, we, we can raise the price. Now, we can't just raise it for you. We've got to raise it for the entire segment, that, uh, that the pool that you are part of. So we're not just going to pick on you. But life insurance companies, actuaries, have done a pretty good job at saying, no, this is the rate and we can keep it flat forever. Long-term care, not the case. Right. And I think one of the things, Dave, and we don't know where you live, but if you live in Indiana and you've got a partnership plan, one of the things that you want to manage, and this is why you want to sit back down with your certified financial planner, is what is the risk to you? And should you continue to transfer the risk or should you live with it? Because it in a vacuum, I don't care what the bill is from the insurance company, it seems like a lot of money. Yeah, right. But it depends on what the, those dollars that you're leveraging are protecting. Yep. And if you're protecting a lot more than you were protecting when you took this insurance out, then you should keep it in place. Because likely one of your choices is you can keep paying what you're paying and we will reduce your coverage. And that that's a tempting one, but if you're protecting a lot more than you were when you first took this policy out, you probably don't want to go down that route. It's possible though that you're protecting considerably less if you than you were. Spent through a lot of your investments or yep. or something like that, yeah. So this is where you want to make sure that you that the, the coverage that you have in place, the reasons why you have in place today are the same reasons that you had when you started this thing. Because if the, the reasons that you have it in place today are different than when you started, then you probably do need to make some sort of an adjustment. That's why I would encourage you to go back to the professional that helped you put this insurance in place and review it as if it's the, the same new decision today that you were going to make back then. Uh, every time that I've had that conversation with clients who are seeing a price increase, they've all concluded the exact same thing. Boy, it was important back then and it's important to me today. Which is lastly why I would say hopefully the person that helped you with that is a certified financial planner and can see your entire financial situation, not just an insurance, quote unquote, air quotes here, salesperson. Thanks for the question, Dave. Thanks, Renee, as well, for the great question as well. That is all the time we have for today, folks. On behalf of Josh Gregory, Kevin Corhorn, and myself, and all of us at KFG, have a great weekend. We'll see you next Saturday for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Securities offered through Silver Oak Securities, member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through KFG Wealth Management, LLC. Doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC and Silver Oak Securities Incorporated companies are unaffiliated.